Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. So, I remind you, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print-impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. All right, we got a couple of the Israel stories here to start us off. Let's go with this one from the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, July 19, 2023. More Israeli protests against judicial changes. Demonstrations royal the nation, casting a shadow over the president's U.S. visit by Sam McNeil. Tel Aviv. Tens of thousands of protesters on Tuesday blocked highways and train stations and met and and massed in, a, in, central, in central Tel Aviv during a day of countrywide demonstrations against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's contentious judicial overhaul plan. The protests, now in their seventh month, have taken on a sense of urgency in recent days as Netanyahu and his allies in Parliament march ahead with the program. The first bill in the package, a measure that seeks to limit the Supreme Court's oversight powers, could become law as soon as next week. The unrest also cast a shadow over a visit to the White House by Israel's figurehead president, Isaac Herzog, who was invited to Washington to celebrate Israel's 75th birthday. Herzog, a political centrist, has been involved in behind-the-scenes efforts to broker a compromise on the judicial overhaul, which has strained relations between Netanyahu and President Biden. In a meeting with Biden in the Oval Office, Herzog acknowledged that Israel was going through a headed de uh, debate as a society, but he said that debate shows that Israel, Israeli society is strong and resilient. He added that the country should seek an amicable consensus. Biden, who has criticized the overhaul plan, said that the U.S. commitment to Israel was strong and the bond between the two countries was unbreakable. Netanyahu and his allies say the overhaul is needed to rein in the powers of an unelected judiciary, particularly the Supreme Court, that they believe is overtly interventionist in government decisions. Their opponents, representing a wide cross-section of Israeli society, say the plan is a power grab by Netanyahu and his ultranationalist, ultra-Orthodox allies that will destroy the country's fragile system of checks and balances. They also say the Prime Minister, who was on trial on corruption charges, and his allies are motivated by various grievances against the judicial system. Late Tuesday, protesters massed outside the U.S. diplomatic offices, packed the central square of Tel Aviv, and crippled the city's main highway. Police on horseback galloped among the crowds, trying to clear them. Earlier, protesters gathered outside Israel's stock exchange and military headquarters. Business leaders have repeatedly warned that a weakened legal system could uh, would, uh, would de uh, deter foreign investors. Military reservists, including fighter pilots and cyber welfare agents, have threatened to stop reporting for duty. Demonstrators, many of them reservists, created human chains that blocked one of the entrances to Israel's military headquarters in central Tel Aviv. Protesters flooded train stations during the afternoon rush hour. Many blew horns or held up blue and white Israeli flags. Outside the Tel Aviv Stock Exchange, demonstrators ignited smoke bombs, drummed and chanted, and held up signs that said, Save our startup nation. We came to the Stock Exchange because this is the symbol of what this craziness of dictatorship is doing to Israel's economy, said protester Ziva Bader. We've become a third world country 
there was no chance for our economy. A group of reservists signed a letter uh, to the commander of the Israeli Air Force saying that they would not report for duty and that the overall was leading to dictatorship. Israel's military chief, Lieutenant General Herzl Halevi, warned that a refusal to report for, for duty harms the army and security of the state of Israel. The Israel Medical Association also announced that doctors would hold a two-hour strike in protest of the le legislation on Wednesday. Emergency operations will proceed as normal, said Dr. Uh, Hagel Levion, Levine, a former head of Israel's Association of Public Health Doctors. Police said at least 45 people are arrested on public disturbance charges. Netanyahu heads the most ultra-nationalist and religious conservative government in Israel's history. His overhaul plan has exposed wide rifts in Israeli society, largely based on religious and economic differences. Netanyahu's allies are motivated by an array of grievances against the court system. His ultra-Orthodox allies, for instance, fear the courts will strip away exemptions and, uh, that allow young religious men to skip otherwise uh, compulsory military service in order to pursue seminary studies. Others have spoken out against rights for the LGBTQ people, while several cabinet ministers are hardline settler leaders who remain furious about Israel's withdrawal from the Gaza Strip in 2005 and accuse the courts, side, the courts of siding with the Palestinians. The protesters, on the other hand, are largely members of Israel's secular middle class who believe the government is planning to clamp down on their way of life and on the country's liberal traditions. A coalition took office in December after winning Israel's fifth elections in under four years. That decision and the previous four that ended a deadlock were a referendum on Netanyahu's fitness to serve as prime minister while on trial. The weekly mass protests led him to suspend the overhaul in March, but he decided to revive the plan last month after compromise talks with the political opposition collapsed. The Israeli parliament gave initial approval last week to a key portion of the overhaul that would prevent the Supreme Court from striking down decisions it finds unreasonable. Netanyahu's coalition spent Tuesday rejecting 26,000 objections to the bill filed by opposition lawmakers. The law is intended as a safeguard against corruption and improper appointments to key positions, but Netanyahu's allies look at it as an infringement on the powers of elected officials. The judges invoked the, cause, the clause this year when they said the appointment of a veteran politician to the cabinet was unreasonable because of his past conviction for uh, accepting bribes and plea bargain over tax offenses. There was more Israeli protests against judicial changes by Sam McNeil. From the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, July 19, 2023, McNeil writes for the Associated Press. Now here's an Israeli story from right here in the U.S. This is from the Nation's section of the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, July 19, 2023. House votes to declare Israel is not a racist state. The resolution passed 412 to 9 serves as a rebuke of a rising progressive, Representative Jayapal, who had suggested otherwise by Owen Tucker Smith, Tracy Wilkinson, and Courtney Subramanian. Washington. The House of Representatives overwhelmingly approved the resolution Tuesday, declaring that Israel is not a racist state, and in, in effect rebuking Representative Pramila Jayapal, Democrat of Washington, who said Saturday that it was. 
The 412-9 vote reaffirms broad bipartisan support for Israel ahead of Israeli President Isaac Herzog's plan to address a joint session of Congress on Wednesday. But the measure, which has no practical effect, also gave Speaker Kevin McCarthy a chance to paint Democrats as divided, embarrass uh, Jayapal, and demonstrate his party's unity after weeks of infighting. Jayapal, chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and a rising leader in her party, apologized for the racist state comment on Sunday and went on to vote for the resolution. But nine Democrats opposed the measure. The resolution contains fewer than 100 words and makes three central claims that Israel is not a racist or apartheid state, that Congress rejects anti-Semitism and xenophobia, and that the U.S. will always be a staunch supporter of Israel. The vote wasn't that complicated, said Representative Pete Aguilar, Democrat of Redlands, one of the top Democrats in the House. It's a pretty simple resolution, he told reporters Tuesday morning. I don't disagree with it, so I'm going to vote for it. But the vote allowed Republicans to highlight Democrats who are especially critical of Israel. Representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Summer Lee, Elon Omar, Cory Bush, Jamil Bowman, Andre Carson, uh, Delia Ramirez, and Ayanna Presley voted against the measure, and Representative Betty McCollum voted present. Most of the Democrats who voted against the resolution are members of the squad, a group of progressive lawmakers known for being among the most left-wing in the House. In voting against a resolution that described Israel as not racist, these Democrats were forced to turn, enforced in turn, to uh, vote against a resolution that condemned anti-Semitism. Talib, the first Palestinian-American woman elected to Congress, criticized the resolution in floor remarks Tuesday. This week, we'll hear consistently that uh, this is bipartisan support here. Talib said, don't forget, this body, this Congress, supported a South African apartheid regime. It was bipartisan as well. Talib, Ocasio-Cortez, Bush, Bauman, and Omar all have said they will skip Herzog's address on Wednesday morning. McCarthy has described their decision as anti-Semitic. Aguilar said he doesn't view this, his caucus as divided on Israel. There is unity in the Democratic caucus, he said. I think you'll see that with a strong attendance from our colleagues on the House floor uh, to see the President of Israel address us. I don't think there is anything more on that. On the House floor Tuesday afternoon, Representative Brad Sherman, Democrat of Northridge, and Republicans focused on Jayapal's comment illustrated a double standard. Israel is not a racist or apartheid state, Sherman said, repeating the language of the resolution. Congress should and does reject all forms of anti-Semitism and xenophobia, and the United States will always be a staunch supporter, staunch partner and supporter of Israel. But why are we taking this up today? Sherman argued the House should have taken up the resolution when Nick Fuentes, a Holocaust denier, was hosted by former President Trump, or when Representatives Paul Gosar and Majority Ta Marjorie Taylor Greene spoke at a conservative conference hosted by Fuentes. We should, believe, we should believe in this resolution every day, Sherman said. If we're going to allocate floor time, it should be when Holocaust deniers are honored by our colleagues and the former president of the United States. The U.S. relationship with Israel is arguably its strongest foreign commitment, with Israel receiving billions of dollars in U.S. aid, virtually no questions asked. While that relationship remains ironclad, 
as U.S. officials like to say under President Biden, there have been a few strains. Israel's harshest critics have been accused of, have, have long accused it <clears throat> of practicing a form of apartheid in its treatment of Palestinians. Administration officials do not use that term, and some critics attack the administration for not rebuking Israel with sufficient forcefulness, especially when Palestinian civilians are killed in Israel, Israeli military anti-terrorism raids or by settlers. Late last year, Israel ceded its most right-wing government in history with a number of cabinet members who have voiced support for openly racist anti-Arab policies. Administration officials say they do not intend to interfere with Israel's domestic politics, but have cautioned against some of the more extreme measures under consideration by the Knesset, Israel's parliament. These include a major overhaul of the Israeli judicial system that even, that even many Israelis regard as a, as a gutting of the country's supreme independent institution and the additional construction of Jewish settlements on West Bank land claimed by Palestinians who seek uh, an eventual independent nation. In rare admonitions, uh, uh, Biden, Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken, and other uh, officials have told the Israeli government it should avoid radical steps that flout the, the will of the public, as the judicial changes apparently would or that, or that would permanently undermine the formation of a Palestinian state as additional sentiments or de facto annexation would. The officials pointed, re, pointedly reminded, reminded Israel to continue to protect the shared democratic values it has with Washington. The U.S. has issued similar warnings to the Palestinian Authority about violence and attacks by Palestinian militants against Israelis, but the criticism of Israeli government is more unusual. The judicial changes are extremely controversial in Israel. <clears throat> Tens of thousands of Israelis have held mass regular street protests against the government, which is led by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, a fixture of Israeli politics, who was on trial on corruption charges. American Jews have also been staging demonstrations in the U.S. in support of the Israeli protesters. Asked whether the White House would like to see strong support for the, uh, for the House resolution, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre told reporters Tuesday that Biden would make clear in his meeting with Herzog that the U.S. commitment to Israel is unwavering and is unshakable, and the two countries share a special bond. Pressed on whether the White House condemned Jayapal's comments, Jean-Pierre said the administration is glad she apologized. Anytime anti-Jewish hatred is said, that is anti-Semitism, that is anti-Semitism, and we find it unacceptable. The Biden administration has also taken the unusual step of refusing to meet with at least one member of Netanyahu's cabinet, Etamar ben Givur, an ultranationalist once convicted of inciting anti-Arab hate, whom Netanyahu appointed as national security minister. And until this week, Biden has broken with custom and declined to invite Netanyahu to the White House. In the West Bank, most of the nearly 3 million Palestinians live under Israeli military occupation. About half a million Jewish Israelis also live in the West Bank in heavily guarded settlements most of the world considers illegal. Palestinians who live inside Israel are on paper, are on, are on paper regarded 
as equal citizens, but human rights groups say these residents, residents are routinely discriminated against or treated as second-class citizens. As Israeli President Herzog holds a largely ceremonial post, uh, under Israel's parliamentary system, he sets the formation of each government in motion by inviting the political party or coalition that won the most uh, uh, votes to take steps to build a cabinet. If the parties fail, the president can invite other participants in the election to act. That was House votes to declare Israel is not a racist state by Owen Tucker Smith, Tracy Wilkinson, and Cordy Serbamanian from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, July 19, 2023. And now here is that uh, that story of the president's visit from the Nation's section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, July 20th, 2023. Israel makes a fair travel pledge. To try to qualify for visa-free trips to the U.S., Nation agrees to treat Palestinian-American visitors without bias by Tracy Wilkinson. Washington. The Biden administration is allowing Israel to audition for a special status that would enable Israelis to travel to the U.S. without a visa but only if Israel can provide it, can prove it will no longer discriminate against Palestinian-American travelers. For more than a decade, Israel has sought membership in the US, United States Visa Waiver Program, a, pri a privilege enjoyed by about 40 most European countries whose citizens can enter the U.S. without visas. But restrictions put that Israeli government, uh, that the Israeli government puts on the movement of Palestinian-Americans, including at times refusing to allow them to use the country's international airport, have meant it could not join the program, U.S. officials say. On Wednesday, the U.S. government said it and officials from uh, Israel were sig uh, signing a memoriam, memorandum of understanding in which Israel would pledge to treat all traveling U.S. citizens equally without regard to national origin, religion, or ethnicity. Uh, through all ports of entry, including Ben-Gurion International Airport near Tel Aviv. Our understanding is that this policy will apply to U.S. citizens, including Palestinian Americans, on the Palestinian Population Registration Registry, and that will begin a process in which we will monitor not just their implementation of these policies, but their compliance with these policies and compliance with our other facets of the Visa Waiver Program State Department spokesman Matthew Miller said. And by September 30, the end of the fiscal year, the U.S. government will make a decision on whether they merit admission into the program, Miller said. U.S. officials will monitor Israel's compliance for the next six to eight weeks before Israelis can travel to the U.S. without visas, two other senior administration officials said separately, briefing reporters on condition of anonymity ahead of the formal announcement. The officials declined to outline in detail how the monitoring would work, whether U.S. agencies would post observers at airport and other points of entry or try similar methods, but said they were determined to obtain accurate reports on the treatment of U.S. citizens. We do have an approach in place whereby we can get information from a variety of sources, one of the administration officials said. Our aim is to collect as much information as we can so that we can reach a judgment that is most likely to capture what is actually taking place as opposed to what we're being told. Palestinian Americans have long complained of being discriminated against, abused, subjected to tough questioning, and confronted with other obstacles when attempting to travel in Israel, 
usually when headed to the West Bank or Gaza Strip or back into Israel from those areas. The Biden administration officials acknowledged that the Israeli government has known for years what, it, uh, what steps it needed to take to win entry into the visa waiver program. This is the first time the Israelis are committing to meeting the requirements at the same time that the visa refusal rate for Israelis dropped to under 3%, another precondition for qualifying for the process, one of the officials said. What Israel is pledging to do would represent a significant change in its policy regarding the entry of American citizens, the official added. I hope that what this is changing is how Israel fundamentally treats all American citizens, especially those with Palestinian or other U.S. dual nationalities. The announcement coincided with Israeli President Isaac Herzog's official visit to Washington, delivering an address to Congress on Wednesday, a day after a meeting with President Biden at the White House. He did not mention the visa program in uh, public remarks, but State Department officials said a breakthrough on the issue was achieved Tuesday. Reports from Israel say the steps it has agreed to will start Thursday. That was Israel Makes a Fair Travel Pledge by Tracy Wilkinson from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, July 20, 2023. Okay, we're going international now. We go to this article from the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, July 17, 2023, in India, Yellen to focus on bilateral ties, global economy, from the Associated Press. Gandahigar, India. On the, heels of, on the heels of a trip to Beijing, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet L. Yellen is back in India for her third visit in nine months, this time to meet with finance ministers from the group of 20 nations about global economic challenges, such as the increased threat of debt uh, defaults facing low-income countries. Yellen said in Gandhinagar, the capital of the western Indian state of Gujarat, on Sunday that she was trying to foster warming relations between the U.S. and India. She also plans to stop in Hanoi to address supply chain reliability, clean energy transition, and other matters of economic resilience. She said her goals during her India visit were to press for debt restructuring in developing countries in economic distress, push to modernize global development banks to make them more climate-focused, and deepen the growing U.S.-India relationship. Her frequent stops in the country signal the importance of that relationship at a time of tension with China. India's long-standing relationship with Russia has also loomed as the Kremlin's invasion of Ukraine continues despite U.S. and allied countries' efforts to sanction and cripple Russia's eco economy. India has not taken part in the punitive efforts and maintains energy trade with Moscow despite a group of seven uh, agreed-upon price cap on Russian oil, which has seen some success in slowing the nation's economy. Yellen said ending the war in Ukraine is first and foremost a moral imperative, but it's also the single best thing we can do for the global economy. She added the U.S., would continue to cut off Russia's access to the military equipment and technologies that it needs to wage war against Ukraine. One of our core goals this year is to combat Russia's efforts to evade our sanctions. Our goal is building on the actions we've taken in recent months to crack down on these efforts, Yellen said. The U.S. increasingly relies on India and has courted its leaders. 
Yellen said the U.S. sees India as an indispensable partner in its friend-shoring strategy for increasing the resilience of supply chains, and she added that private U.S. firms sees India as an excellent place for producing goods and exporting to the United States. She also noted that slowing growth in China has impacted many other countries. It is something I discussed with my Chinese counterparts. I think the Chinese are anxious to communicate that their business environment is open. There is a desire, certainly, to see foreign investment, Yellen said. President Biden hosted a state visit honoring Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi in June, designed to highlight and foster ties. The two leaders pronounced the U.S.-India relationship never stronger and rolled out new business deals between the nations. Raymond Vickery Jr., a policy expert on U.S.-India relations at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, said Yellen's travel to India shortly after visiting China is meaningful and that Indian officials are going to want to know in great detail what happened in the meetings with their Chinese counterparts and see where it fits with their perspective on economic relations with China. They're going to want to know whether or not the United States is serious about moving some of its sourcing activity from China to India. A senior Treasury official speaking on condition of anonymity to prevent Yellen's trip, to preview, to preview Yellen's trip, said there was hope that debt treatments for Ghana and Sri Lanka would be discussed and completed quickly at the meetings. Sri Lanka and Ghana defaulted on their international debts last year, roughly two years after Zambia's default. More than half of all low-income countries face debt distress, which hurts their long-term ability to function and develop. Last month, Zambia and its government creditors, including China, reached a deal to restructure $6.3 billion in loans on the sidelines of a global finance summit in Paris. The agreement covers loans from countries including France, the UK, South Africa, Israel, and India, as well as China, Zambia's biggest creditor, at $4.1 billion of the total. The deal may provide a roadmap for how China will handle restructuring agreements with other nations. That was, in India, Yellen to focus on bilateral ties, global economy, from the Associated Press, out of the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, July 17, 2023. And we have this one from the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, July 19, 2023, Blinken Blasts GOP Actions by Tracy Wilkinson. Washington. A handful of senators is blocking the confirmation of dozens of highly regarded Biden administration ambassadorial appointees over largely partisan issues that have nothing to do with the nominee's qualifications, Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken said Monday. In an unusual head-on confrontation with Congress, Blinken complained that action by some senators is crippling the ability of the United States to project its influence on the global stage, stifling the U.S. voice in crucial countries in the Middle East and Europe during the raging war in Ukraine and undermining national security. The diplomatic delays come as a single Republican senator has blocked hundreds of U.S. military promotions, including the appointment of the commander of the Marine Corps, leaving an acting leader in charge for the first time in more than 100 years. Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville, a former football coach, is blocking the promotions in objection to the Defense Department's efforts to provide reproductive and gender-affirming care to service members. 
By failing to confirm these nominees, a handful of senators are keeping our best players on the sidelines, Blinken said. In comments Monday to journalists and in a letter to senators, Blinken said that while the appointment of career foreign service officers to keep diplomatic posts is usually all but pro forma, and that 170 were confirmed in the first two years of the Biden administration, only five <coughs> ambassadorial assignments have survived this year, leaving 38 languishing. More than 20 lower-level appointments have also stalled. Vacant posts have long-term negative impact on U.S. national security, including our ability to reassure allies and partners and counter diplomatic efforts by our allies, the Secretary of State said in a letter, signing aggressive campaigns by China to oppose large diplomatic uh, missions throughout Africa and Latin America, where Beijing's economic influence is expanding influ in exponentially. China and Russia have benefited most from the Senate stalling, he said. Blinken pinned most of the blame on Senator Rand Paul, Republican of Kentucky, who issued a blanket hold on appointees over his demands for documents on the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. Paul is entitled to seek documents, State Department spokesman Matthew Miller said, but he noted that what we object to is him holding nominees hostages. At the current pace, Blinken said, top posts as crucial as those in Israel and Egypt may sit vacant by the end of the summer. No one is questioning the qualifications of these career diplomats, Blinken said in a media briefing at the State Department. They're being blocked from leverage on other unrelatable issues. It's irresponsible, and it's doing harm to our national security. Congressional Republicans want to subpoena Blinken to force him to turn over internal cables dealing with Afghanistan. There is a dissent cable, so-called because diplomats voice differences with U.S. policy, on the disastrous U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. The State Department has offered its contents to congressional investigators, but some lawmakers want to see the original document. Meanwhile, Tuberville has been blocking important promotions in the U.S. military for weeks over the Defense Department's progressive health, re, uh, health policies, including reimbursement for service members who have to travel for abortions, as well as for gender-affirming health care. It is estimated by the, that by the end of the year, he will have blocked more than 600 appointments. The military sees these steps as ways to maintain an inclusive armed services. But opponents, including Tuberville and his GOP allies, say U.S. taxpayers should not pay for the programs. The military should be buying the weapons that we need to defend our nation and to support our troops, Senator Tom Cotton, Republican of Arkansas, a Tuberville ally, told Fox News over the weekend. There was Blinken Blast's GOP actions by Tracy Wilkinson from the Los Angeles Times Wednesday, July 19, 2023. Okay, and now we have this one from the perspective section of the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, July 19, 2023. RFK Jr. adds Jews to virus conspiracy mongering by Michael Hiltzik. It has been well noted that Whatever their starting points, conspiracy theorists sooner or later get around to blaming the Jews. During a press dinner at New York last week, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is hoping to convert his portfolio of chuck-heading conspiracy theories about COVID-19 and all sorts of other things into the semblance of a presidential campaign, went there last week. We put hundreds of millions of dollars into ethnically uh, targeted microbes, he said, delivering his spiel 
uh, to dining companions who heard him uh, heard him out with increasingly evident discomfit discomfiture. In fact, COVID nineteen there's an argument that it is ethnically targeted. COVID nineteen is targeted to attack Caucasians and Black people. The people who are most immune are Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese. The dinner took place July 11. Videos from the event were first published by the New York Post over the weekend. Kennedy tried to backtrack with a tweet Saturday, but, as I'll show, that fell into the category of erecting what Winston Churchill might have called a bodyguard of lies. Despite a subsequent disclaimer, the import of his words was that Jews were using the pandemic for their own sinister purposes. Notwithstanding his defense that he was just pointing out facts, none of his assertions were factual, and the assurances from sycophants such as Rabbi Shmuley Boutique that he's no anti-Semite, Kennedy's remarks were truly and unmistakably anti-Semitic. He specified that Jews are a population relatively protected from a virus that some unnamed sinister force is targeting to ethnic groups. What else would you call this? It's tempting to say that Kennedy crossed that Rubicon with his comments, but that would suggest that this was a one-time thing. Actually, Kennedy has exploited anti-Semitic tropes before. At a Sacramento appearance in 2015, for example, he called the perpetrated epidemic of autism caused by childhood vaccinations, a connection that has been conclusively debunked, a holocaust using a term that has come to signify the murder of 6 million European Jews by the Nazis. At an anti-vaccine rally last year in Washington, he said that surveillance technologies being promoted by Bill Gates would make Americans less free than were Jews under the Nazis. Even in Hitler's Germany, he said that you could cross the Alps into Switzerland. You could hide in an attic as Anne Frank did. Today, the mechanisms are being put in place that will make it so none of us can run and none of us can hide. Kennedy's COVID-19 claim and the others uh, in which he used anti-Semitic observations to advance his worldview, reflect a long history in which anti-science claims and anti-Semitism have been handmaidens. Linking anti-Semitism to anti-science as a basis deeply rooted in European history going back to the 1300s, writes vaccine scientist Pete Hotez, a veteran debunker of pseudoscientific claims about disease and vaccines in an upcoming paper. The practice intensified under Nazi Germany and Stalinist Russia. The Nazis vilified Albert Einstein, burning his books and papers in Berlin and forcing him into exile, eventually in the U.S. His theory of relativity was denounced as a Jewish fraud. Today's attack on biomedical science, Hotez adds, increasing, increasingly embraces both Nazi imagery and Holocaust denialism. Anti-vaccine activists today have accused Jews of creating the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which causes COVID, and profiting from sales of vaccines or other COVID-19 prevention measures. Hotez, who is Jewish, has himself been compared to Nazi Dr. Joseph Mengele for developing vaccines or being a vaccine advocate, he writes. He and other vaccine advocates have been threatened with Nuremberg-style trials for ex or execution, a common threat levied against doctors by the anti-vaccine movement. Anti-Semitism has also moved into the Republican Party mainstream, which also has a long history of anti-science policymaking. In a tweet on October 23, 2018, 
Representative Kevin McCarthy, Republican of Bakersfield, now the House Speaker, accused George Soros, Michael Bloomberg, and Tom Steyer, three Jewish billionaires, of trying to buy this election. That echoed the ancient accusation that Jews plot secretly to rule the world, an allegation that has been so focused on Soros in recent years that this name alone serves as an anti-Semitic dog whistle to the Republican base. In a 2018 Facebook post, right-wing crackpot Marjorie Taylor Greene, a Republican from Georgia who was elected to the House in 2021 and is now part of McCarthy's inner circle, associated the California wildfires that year with financial gains enjoyed by Rothschild Incorporated, another historical target of anti-Semites. Greene conjectured that the fires were caused by lasers or blue beams of light coming down to earth, I guess. Greene's argument has been ridiculed as the Jewish space laser theory, but its anti-Semitic content shouldn't be minimized. Green has also called Soros a Nazi collaborator, even though he was not yet two years old when the Nazis first came to power in the German Reichstag and 15 when World War II ended. That brings us back to Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Despite his family's long association with the liberal wing of the Democratic Party, his father, a one-time U.S. senator from New York, uh, was slammed in 1968 as he launched a campaign for president, and his uncles were President John F. Kennedy, uh, were President John F. Kennedy, and Senator Edward M. Kennedy, Democrat of Massachusetts. His pronouncements on vaccines and COVID-19 hue closely to GOP and right-wing orthodoxy. In his defense tweet Saturday, Kennedy disputed the New York Post's assertion that he said COVID-19 may have been ethnically targeted to spare Jews. He tweeted. I've never ever suggested that COVID-19 virus was targeted to spare Jews. Rather, he wrote, I accurately pointed out that the U.S. and other governments are developing ethnically charged, uh, ethnic tar uh, targeted blow weapons and that a 2021 study of the COVID-19 virus shows that COVID-19 appears to disproportionately affect certain races since the foreign cleave docking site is most compatible with blacks and Caucasians and least compatible with ethnic Chinese, Finns, and Ashkenazi Jews. I did not believe and never implied that the ethnic, ethnic effect was deliberately engineered. He linked, the, he, linked to the study, he, his, he linked to the study, he said, was the basis for his assertion. Let's wade into this hurricane of lies. To begin with, the study he cited was not from 2021, but 2020. It was submitted to the journal BMC Medicine in April that year, scarcely four months after the first outbreak of COVID-19 was reported in China, and therefore an early analysis of the SARS-CoV-2 genome at best. In any case, the paper doesn't say what Kennedy claimed. The paper was based on DNA lab analyses, not on, an, on not in any findings about ethnic susceptibility to the virus. It came to no conclusions about any disproportionate effect of the virus, but only noted that some groups have uh, different genetic characteristics that may or may not affect their susceptibility to infection. The paper's authors wrote that these factors are largely unknown. The authors did emphasize, however, that mortality and morbidity related to COVID-19 were closely tied to factors such as age and coexisting health conditions, including cancer and cardiovascular diseases, findings that have held up over time. To the contrary, no evidence has surfaced relating that genetic factors uh, the paper referred to and that Kennedy ran with to, uh, 
to the course of the pandemic. To validate Kennedy's claims that different genetic features of human cells contribute to infection by the SARS-CoV-2 virus, you would need to show that actually uh, that that actually mattered in uh, the real world of human beings, said John P. Moore, professor of microbiology and immunology at Weill Cornell Medical College in New York. In the three years since that paper, I'm not aware of any evidence that different human cells and different human populations and cell culture differ in any significant way in their ability to support SARS-CoV-2 infections. Moore, who spent years battling denialism that HIV-caused AIDS, told me. There's no scientific uh, basis that is out there for what Kennedy sa is saying, Moore said. There has been so much research on the implications of genetic diversity for the COVID pandemic, he says, that we would know for sure if what Kennedy is saying was true and there was no such evidence. Kennedy's plea that he never ever suggested that the COVID-19 virus was targeted to spare Jews is undermined by his own words. As recorded in the published video clip, the implications of what he says are crystal clear. In his defensive tweet, Kennedy ignored the questions of what he thought was doing, what was doing the targeting of COVID-19 and why it would be targeted at Caucasians and black people. He failed to elucidate why he singled out Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese in his rundown of supposed immunities. The paper, however, makes no mention of the Chinese, but only mentions DNA analyses of South Asian and East Asian populations which encompass many other populations in addition to ethnic Chinese. And why mention Ashkenazi Jews? Ashkenazis generally trace their origins to Western and Central Europe and as distinguished from Sephardic Jews who trace theirs to the Iberian Peninsula and North America. Put it all together, and Kennedy is reaching to paint an ethnic picture of the COVID pandemic that is profoundly at odds with actual infection and death rates of nations and ethnic communities worldwide. He does so by treating the rough findings of a study of ethnic genome variations as though they were firm conclusions based on hard evidence and joins them to claims mired in sheer fantasy about research into ethnically targeted microbes. Has Kennedy got, now gone too far in his effort to base a presidential bid on conspiracy mongering? Moore draws a lesson from the eventual defeat of HIV denialists. We used to expose the stupidity of some of the leaders of the AIDS denialists by pointing out that they also believed 9-11 was a Mossad CIA hoax, that the Loch Ness Monster was real, etc., he says. That kind of cross-conspiracy craziness caused credibility, not with the hardcore, but with a subset that is persuadable. Kennedy's appeal to anti-Semitism may indeed narrow his appeal, which appears to be exaggerated anyway. The question is, who was listening to him even before this? That was RFK Jr. Adds Jews to Virus Conspiracy Mongering by Michael Hiltzik from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, July 19, 2023. Hiltzik writes a blog on latimes.com. Follow him on Facebook or on Twitter at HiltzikM or email michael.hiltzik at latimes.com. All right, we go on to this one from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, July 22nd, 2023. Trump Organization Settles with Cohen Over Legal Bills. One-time fixer said he was stuck with charges after investigations into the ex-president. From the Associated Press. New York. 
Donald Trump's company and his former longtime lawyer and fixer, Michael Cohen, have settled a lawsuit over Cohen's claims that he was unfairly stuck with big legal bills after getting entangled in investigations into the former president. Lawyers for the two sides disclosed the settlement in a video conference with the judge on Friday, three days before Cohen's 2019 loss, uh, lawsuit was slated to go to trial in state court in Manhattan. Details of the agreement were not made public. Cohen said Friday that the matter has been resolved in a matter satisfactory to all parties. Lawyers for Trump's company, the Trump Organization, did not immediately respond to messages seeking comment. The lawsuit was one of the most obscure branches of the thicket of legal troubles surrounding Trump and his company. Still, the trial stood to give a platform to Cohen, an ardent Trump loyalist who became an outspoken antagonist and, and, and to put the ex-president's son, Donald Trump Jr., on the witness stand. Cohen claimed his lawsuit, in his lawsuit that the Trump Organization had promised to pay its legal expenses and that it had done so for a time footing more than $1.7 million in legal fees. But Cohen said the company reneged after he began cooperating with federal prosecutors in their investigations into Trump's business dealings in Russia and attempts to silence women who had embarrassing personal stories about Trump. Cohen's lawyers stopped representing him after the company stopped paying. His suit said that harmed his ability to respond to the federal investigation. In court papers, the Trump Organization has disputed that it made certain promises and has said it satisfied any obligations it did have. The company also has argued that Cohen's involvement in the federal investigations wasn't an outgrowth of his former job, but rather a personal decision to try to reduce his own criminal legal exposure as an indictment loomed. Jury selection in the case began Monday, with the trial slated to start next week. Among the prospective jurors, more than half said they had strong opinions about Trump, the leading candidate in polls on the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. Several said their feelings toward him were intense enough that they would not be able to fairly evaluate evidence. While the former president would not have been a witness in the trial, Trump Jr., who was a leader in the family business, was expected to testify. Cohen pleaded guilty in 2018 to multiple charges admitting that he lied to Congress violated campaign finance laws through excessive political contributions, lied to multiple banks to obtain financing, and evaded income taxes by failing to report more than $4 million in income. He was sentenced to three years in prison, but served nearly two-thirds of that at home and was released after the COVID-19 outbreak overwhelmed the nation's prisons. He then became a key witness in the New York grand jury proceeding uh, that, led, uh, that led to Trump's April indictment on charges of falsifying Trump organization records to protect his 2016 candidacy by suppressing claims that he had extramarital sexual encounters. Trump denied the alleged encounters and pleaded not guilty to the criminal charges. He cast the case as a Democratic district attorney's attempt to blunt his campaign to return to the White House. Trump has since sued Cohen, accusing him of violating a confidentiality agreement, breaching ethical standards for lawyers, and maliciously spreading falsehoods about him. A Cohen spokesman, attorney Larry da D Lanny Davis, has responded that Trump is abusing the legal system to harass Cohen. While Friday's settlement resolves the lawsuit over Cohen's legal expenses, another trial is set for October in New York. Attorney General 
Letitia James's business fraud lawsuit against Trump's company and the businessman turned president himself. Trump also faces a trial next March in the New York hush money indictment, a trial set for next May in Florida in the federal criminal case over his handling of classified documents and an upcoming uh, second federal civil trial involving writer E. Jean Carroll's claim that he defamed her by denying her sexual assault allegation against him. He also disclosed this week that the Justice Department had told him he is a target of an investigation into the efforts to reverse his loss in the 2020 presidential election, a notification that could signal forthcoming charges. Separately, prosecutors in Georgia plan to announce charging decisions within weeks in their inquiry into attempts by Trump and his allies to reverse the vote outcome there. Trump has denied any wrongdoing in the cases and says prosecutors are ginning up charges to damage his presidential campaign. That was Trump Organization Settles with Cohen Over Legal Bills from the Associated Press. Out of the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, July 22, 2023. Okay, we move on to right back here in California with our senior U.S. Senator. This is from the California section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, July 20th, 2023. Feinstein asks for trustee changes. Court filing argues she isn't getting money from medical bills from her late husband's trust by Benjamin Oreskes. After acute health problems that kept her away from Washington for months earlier this year, Senator Dianne Feinstein is now engaged in a legal effort to gain more control of the finances from her late husband's trust. The 90-year-old California Democrat filed a petition asking a court to make her daughter, Catherine Feinstein, a successor trustee of Richard Bloom's trust, arguing that the people serving as trustees have refused to make dis uh, distributions to reimburse Senator Feinstein's medical expenses. Bloom, who died last year, was a wealthy financier and Catherine Feinstein's stepfather. Catherine Feinstein filed the petition on her mother's behalf she is a former Superior Court judge and a current San Francisco Fire Commissioner. Senator Feinstein has incurred significant medical expenses, and she submitted a request to whom she believed to be the trustees of the 1996 Marital Trust for Reimbursement of her medical bills, said the says the petition, which was filed in Monday in San Francisco Superior Court. While seeking reimbursement for her medical expenses, Senator Feinstein learned that Bloom did not name the purported trustees in the 1996 trust and they were not appointed in compliance with its terms. The petition asks the court to appoint Catherine Feinstein as a successor trustee who would control the trust, which includes a life insurance policy for Bloom and its, free, and its pr proceeds. The trust is worth between a million and five million dollars, according to Feinstein's Senate finance disclosures. The longtime San Franciscan's assets go far beyond this, this trust, with government transparency group Open Secrets estimating her, her net worth in 2018 at upward of $120 million. In the court documents, Feinstein argues that trustees Mark R. Klein and Mark Shulvenick, who both pre previously worked with Bloom, were improperly appointed as trustees after his death. My clients are perplexed by today's filing. Richard Bloom's trust has never denied any disbursement to Senator Feinstein, let alone for medical expenses, said Klein and Shlovenik's uh, attorney, Stephen B. P. Braccini, in an email. 
Braccini noted that he had not been shown any evidence that Catherine Feinstein had power of attorney for her mother. Catherine has not made it clear, either in this filing or directly to my clients, why a sitting U.S. Senate state senator, a sitting United States senator, would require someone to have power of attorney over her. While my clients are deeply concerned, we all remain hopeful that this is simply a misunderstanding that can be quickly resolved, rather than a stepdaughter engaging in some kind of misguided attempt to gain control over trust assets to which she is not entitled. Danville attorney Lauren Barr, who specializes in estate planning, said that in most cases, the delineating powers of attorney are very rarely recorded. There's no requirement they be recorded. They are, they're almost never recorded. Feinstein granting this to her daughter could mean several things, he said. One, he said, is because she is incapacitated and couldn't read documents or sign them. The other time it's done is somebody is old and tired and doesn't have the energy to travel if they're out of town, he said. There are general powers of attorney that have almost everything in it. But then there are also limited powers of attorney that are used for a particular purpose. So when my friend moved to England and wanted to sell his house out here in the East Bay, it gave me a power to sell the house. Feinstein missed nearly three months of work after contracting a case of shingles and experiencing prolonged side effects that, that partially paralyzed her face and caused difficulty walking. Her absence, which slowed the appointment of some judicial nominees, caused serious consternation among colleagues and Democrats. When she returned in mid-May, she appeared frail and in one conversation appeared to not recall she'd been absent for months. Her return did unlock the nomination of, a, of certain nominees and quelled some of the criticism being lobbed, at her, lobbed her way, though concerns about her mental acuity have persisted. A recent statewide poll found that more than 40% of voters felt Feinstein should resign, and just 27% thought that she should finish her term. A majority felt she is no longer fit to serve in office. She has already said she is not running for another term in 2024. When the Times approached her in the Capitol in Washington on Wednesday, she declined to answer questions on the subject. Feinstein's daughter did not return a call seeking comment. This is a private legal matter. Senator Feinstein and her office won't have any comment, a Feinstein spokesman, Adam Russell, wrote in an email. Last month, in a separate petition made in Superior Court, Catherine Feinstein alleged that Klein wouldn't ex execute the necessary steps that would allow the senator to sell a home she owned in a gated community at Stinson Beach with her late husband. Feinstein has asked the court to, uh, to order Klein to sign off on a sale of the home because she does not want to pay for half of the property's carrying costs. She desires to sell Stinson Beach as soon as possible. Feinstein's daughter alleged in court documents that Bloom's three daughters don't want to sell the home because it would reduce their inheritance when uh, the senator dies and wish to make use of Stinson Beach during Senator Feinstein's lifetime and after her death at her expense. No response has been filed by Klein or Bloom's children who could not be reached for comment. A hearing for the case has been set for late August. The couple owned this home another in San Francisco, and one in Hawaii. Earlier this year, the Wall Street Journal reported that Feinstein sold a home she owned with her husband in Aspen, Colorado, for $25.25 million. The paper reported that Klein handled the sale. In 2021, Bloom sold a home on Lake Tahoe 
that his investment firm owned for $36 million. That was Feinstein asks for trustee changes by Benjamin Oreskes from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, July 20, 2023. Time staff writers Aaron Logan and Owen Tucker Smith contributed to this report. And here's a little story regarding our U.S. Senate race. From the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, July 17, 2023, Schiff leads U.S. Senate race fundraising. Burbank congressmen received more than $8 million in recent months, reports show, by Seema Mehta. Representative Adam B. Schiff swamped his rivals in the financial race to replace retiring Senator Dianne Feinstein, raising $8.2 million in recent months, according to federal fundraising reports released Saturday. Schiff collected roughly double the combined total raised by his top Democratic opponents, Representatives uh, Katie Porter and Barbara Lee, in the same period. Schiff's windfall was funneled by his June censor by congressional Republicans over his role in investigating former GOP President Trump's ties in Russia, a reprimand the Burbank Democrat repeatedly highlighted in his fundraising appeals. Schiff might as well have paid for this censor, in the sense that it has gotten him exactly what he wants, which is, I'm the person Republicans don't want to win, and that's for a reason, said Jessica Levinson, an election law professor at Loyola Law School. Even though he's such an eloquent and well-spoken lawyer, I don't know that he could have made the case for himself in the way Republicans did. Schiff's Hall far outpaced that of Porter, an Irvine Democrat who raised $3.1 million in the second quarter of 2023, but she led Schiff uh, 19-16% in a poll of likely voters released last week by the Public Policy Institute of California. Lee has the support of 13%. In recent years, Schiff and Porter have been among the most prodigious and fundraisers in the House, but Porter had to spend nearly $29 million on her tight Orange County re-election bid last year while Schiff coasted to another term and banked his donations. Lee an Oakland Democrat, received $1.1 million from April 1st to June 30, according to disclosure documents filed with the Federal Election Commission, which were made public Saturday. That's the same amount uh, raised by Democrat Lexi Reese, a Silicon Valley executive seeking the seat in her first run for public office, which, who contributed about $284,000 of her own money to her campaign. Although the general election is more than a year away, these figures are crucial in early assessments of the candidates' prospects as they vie for a rare open Senate seat representing California, home to some of the most expensive media markets in the nation. Television advertising is a requisite in any campaign courting California's 22 million voters. Feinstein 90 was known for breaking gender barriers or, uh, even before she was first elected to the Senate in 1982's Year of the Woman, when a record number of female candidates won seats in Congress. The San Francisco Democrat has been lauded by colleagues of both parties for her intelligence and devotion to her work. Her concerns about her declining mental and physical capabilities reached a peak in recent months, and she announced in February that she would not seek another term next year. Several Republicans are also running for Feinstein's seat, but their prospects are dim due to California's progressive tilts. California's last, elect, California's last elected a GOP politician to a statewide office in 2006 and have grown more liberal since then. 
Democrats account for 47% of registered voters, Republicans 24%, and voters who did not express a party preference 22% as of February 10, according to the Secretary of State's office. Eric Early, a Republican attorney running for the Senate seat, reported raising $201,176 through June 30. A fundraising report for James Bradley, a GOP Coast Guard veteran and former health care executive, had not been posted by the FEC as of Sunday evening. The race to replace Feinstein is further complicated by California's jungle primary, in which the two candidates who received the most votes advanced to the general November general election, regardless of their party. The primary is scheduled to take place in March. If two Democrats emerge as the winners of the primary, their battle will continue until November, and tens of millions of dollars will be spent on the contest. If a Republican claims one of the top, spot, top two spots, the Democrat will have a seemingly insurmountable advantage. But one notable uncertainty is whether former Dodgers star Steve Garvey, a Republican, will enter the contest. He is expected to announce a decision, at, uh, a decision this month. As of Saturday, 23 candidates had filed to run. Schiff and Porter, frequent cable news guests, who are popular among liberal voters for their respective opposition to Trump and to corporate chiefs, have been among the top fundraisers in Congress in recent years. But since they started running against one another for Feinstein's seat, Schiff has outpaced Porter. In the first three months of 2023, he raised $6.5 million and spent $2.8 million, while Porter raised $4.5 million and spent $2.5 million, according to the Federal Election Report records. Their financial disparity grew in the second quarter of this year, with Schiff raising $8.2 million and spending $3.3 million, and Porter raising $3.1 million and spending $2.2 million, according to the FEC. As of June 30, Schiff had $29.8 million in cash on hand, while Porter had $10.4 million. They have more money in their bank accounts than they have raised due to transfers from their congressional campaign committees. Lee's campaign finances continue to lag behind those of her congressional colleagues in the race. She reported $1.1 million in the second quarter and spent $817,000. She has $1.4 million in the bank as of June 30. As Schiff highlights his, fi uh, his fight with Trump in fundraising appeals, and Porter points to her experience as a single mom serving in Congress and offers meal planning tips, Lee, a black woman who has served in the House since 1998, emphasizes the racial disparities in the nation's capital. Only two African-American women have ever been elected to the Senate. We love you, Barbara. We think you would make a great senator, but Adam Schiff, he just looks like a senator, Lee wrote in, a, in an email to supporters, paraphrasing comments she has received. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard this on the campaign trail, and I'll be honest, it breaks my heart. That was Schiff Leads U.S. Senate Race Fundraising by Seema Mehta from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, July 17, 2023. All right, here's this one from the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, July 18, 2023. Jury in synagogue killings, here's the pain of loved ones. Pittsburgh panel will decide the fate of the gunman who took 11 lives. A prosecutor seeks the death penalty. From the Associated Press. Pittsburgh. The gunman who killed 11 worshippers at a Pittsburgh synagogue targeted them because of their faith and has never expressed remorse, a federal prosecutor said Monday in asking jurors to impose the death penalty.
The defense argued that life in prison is sufficient punishment for the nation's deadliest anti-Semitic attack. Opening statements Monday in the sentencing phase of Robert Bowers' federal trial painted dueling portraits of the men who opened the f- open fire during religious services in the heart of Pittsburgh's Jewish community. That an unrepentant killer motivated by his hatred of Jews and, a, and of a psychologically damaged loner with a terrible childhood who fell under the influence of online extremism. Bowers, 50, a truck, a truck driver from suburban Baldwin, Pennsylvania, killed members of three congregations who had gathered at the Tree of Life Synagogue on October 27, 2018. He also wounded two worshippers and five police officers. After returning a conviction of all 63 counts, he faced jurors subsequently determined Bowers' crimes are eligible for capital punishment, moving the trial into its final stretch, a decision on sentencing. Prosecutors began presenting victim impact testimony to bolster their case for death. Survivor Carol Black, who testified earlier in the trial, returned to the witness stand Monday to tell jurors about her beloved brother, 65-year-old Richard Gottfried, a dentist who was shot and killed. Gottfried was warm and loving and a good friend, Black recalled. The siblings were close, attending University of Pittsburgh football games together for decades. He was active at the synagogue and would often lead the family in prayer during religious holidays, Black said. It's just such a huge void in our family for him not to be here, she said. Gottfried's, Gottfried's wife, Margaret, Margaret Peg Duratko, testified about how they offered free dental care to those in need and about how their Jewish and Roman Catholic faith traditions matched. The couple had, expressed, had expected to have 30 more years together, she said. My whole world was turned upside down by his killing, she said. He was my whole family because we never had children. It was wiped out in a second. Early, earlier Monday, during opening statements, prosecutors reminded the jury about Bowers' history of spewing anti-Semitic hatred online. Since then, the killer has boasted about what he did and told psychologists that he wishes he had killed more, said Assistant, Assistant U.S. Attorney Nicole Vasquez-Schmidt. He hated Jews and wanted to kill as many as he could, she said. Naming each of the 11 deceased victims as their photos were displayed on the screen, the prosecutors said Bowers had inflicted immeasurable pain and suffering. His decision to target people attending religious services at a place of worship, many of them elderly and disabled, made the attack that much worse, she said. She said. These were not victims who could run away or fight back. They were easy prey, said Vasquez Schmidt, telling jurors uh, they would near they would hear testimony about their lives and how much they are loved and missed. She asked the jury to hold Bowers accountable, calling the death penalty a verdict of justice. The defense in its opening statement focused on Bowers' difficult childhood. Bowers' parents divorced when he was a baby. His father took his own life after being charged with rape, and his mother later told Bowers she wished she had never been born, and publicly said public defender Eliza Long. Bowers was hungry and cold throughout much of his early life and was profoundly profoundly shaped by a childhood trauma, Long said. Later, as an adult, he was a loner with few friends, he said. The defense argued that 
mental illness and brain abnormalities made Bowers more susceptible to being influenced by the extremist content he found online. We ask each of you at the end of the process to look deep in your heart and exclude and conclude enough is enough. Long told the jury, another death will not make things right. Also killed in the attack were Joyce, Joyce Feinberg, 75, Rose Manlinger, 97, Dr. Jerry Rabinowitz, 66, Brothers David Rosenthal, 54, and Cecil Rosenthal, 59, Bernice Simon, 84, and her husband, Silvano Simon, 86, Dan Stein, 71, Melvin Wax, 87, and Irving Younger, 69. That was Jury and Synagogue Killings, Here's the Pain of Loved Ones, from the Associated Press, out of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, July 18, 2023. All right, and now we have this one. From the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, July 16, 2023, Dr. Bronner's Soap for Any Subculture. His vision and magic products live on at Progressive Family Farm by Andrea Chang. Vista, California. Officially, there are 18 ways to use Dr. Bronner's magic soaps, B-R-O-N-N-E-R. The same amber liquid you rub on your body doubles as a toothpaste, a fruit and vegetable rinse, a decongestant, a laundry and dishwashing detergent, a shaving cream substitute, a floor mopping solution, a shampoo for you or your dog, and a toilet bowl cleaner. In the company's early days, its eccentric founder crammed even more suggested applications onto the text-heavy World Peace Espousing labels that had become a hallmark of the cult's brand. The multitasking soap, Emmanuel Bronner promised, could kill fleas and ticks, until the Environmental Protection Agency made him change the language. He amended it to cleans fleas and ticks. Today's updated version says ant spray. It was also Dr. Bronner's, who wasn't actually a doctor, assertion that the product made primarily of water and plant oils could prevent pregnancy. I think my granddaughter was going off of if you change the pH of the environment, a fertilized egg would be unviable. So if you wash with the soap after intercourse, then it would functionally act as birth control, said Lisa Bronner. That wasn't the road that we wanted to go down. The family-owned company backed away from the claim after its founder died in 1997. Perhaps inspired by that experimental ethos, customers have discovered their own unusual uses in the years since Emmanuel started mixing gallons of peppermint castle soap out of his Pershing Square tenement apartment in 1948. The result was so good that what had begun as a way for the third-generation soap maker to propagate his spiritual message by printing it onto the labels of the bottles in dense blocks of tiny script became the top-selling natural soap brand in the country, with deep footholds among hippies, campers, backpackers, vegans, hikers, moms, gardeners, and other niche groups. It's the official soap of the American Ferret Owners Association, grandson Mike Bronner said at a recent natural products trade show in Anaheim, a wall plaster with 10-foot-tall images of candy-colored Dr. Bronner's bottles looming over him. I didn't even know who, I didn't even know people owned ferrets. Whatever your subculture is, added older brother David Bronner, we're your soap. From the company's booth nearby, cheerful Dr. Bronner's employees were doling out samples, rainbow bumper stickers, and the brand new organic vegan chocolate flavor, chocolate bar flavor, cool peppermint cream, a nod to its original soap scent. Also up for grabs, copies of Emmanuel Bronner's 70-page screed titled 
the moral ABC and vinyl records of him reciting it. Like the soap labels, the wrappers on Dr. Bronner's Magic All One Chocolate are crowded with exclamation point studded passages from the moral ABC, which details in rambling, often incoherent prose, Emmanuel's belief that all beings are interconnected and must join together regardless of religious or ethnic divides. All one or none, he liked to shout at what would become the company's motto. It does not, as many have assumed, refer to the soap's reputed all-purpose properties. David, Mike, and Lisa Bronner grew up in Glendale, not giving much thought to the prospect of one day taking over the family business and generally regarding their grandfather as a bewildering figure. My granddad was always talking about uniting spaceship Earth, and it was kind of sailing over our heads, David said. He'd be talking to us as if we were all Ph.D. students in religious studies, Mike said of visits to Emmanuel's home when the siblings were in elementary school. He was blind, and every once in a while, he would say, Are you there? And we'd be like, All one, Grandpa. And he'd be like, Very good. Okay, I want you to recite the peppermint bottle. Today, David and Mike run Dr. Bronner's as equal partners, carrying on the brotherly love philosophy of their late grandfather while growing the 75-year-old company into a $170.3 million in annual revenue last year. Revenue totaled $4 million in 1998, the year their father, Jim Bronner, died. A decade before, he had saved the flailing company from bankruptcy. Dr. Bronner's soap, initially rooted in counterculture and relegated to the shelves of health food stores, is now sold at major U.S. retailers and in 40 countries, with a bottle or bar sold every 0.95 of a second. At $16.99 for a one-quarter bottle, it's prized for being intensely fragrant, eco-friendly, biodegradable, fair trade, gentle on the skin, and cost-effective due to its super-concentrated formulation. Dilute, dilute. Okay, the, the, the labels urge. Sandra Bullock once shared her window washing method using Dr. Bronner's almost scented soap, almond scented soap. Kristen Bell said the tingly peppermint is nice for a foot soak at the end of the day. Drew Barrymore called it the miracle natural product, and Lady Gaga was photographed in a bathtub with a green bottle of Dr. Bronner's visible on the ledge. Nunn is a paid spokesperson. More and more mainstream folks are grooving on us, said David, 50, a Harvard graduate with a degree in biology and a penchant for saying right on. Although Dr. Bronner's has gained widespread popularity, the company, registered as All One God Faith Incorporated, is no conventional corporate giant. One of its core cosmic principles, it says, is to fund and fight for what's right. Dr. Bronner's progressive ideals are largely driven by tie-dye and black fedora-wearing David, who was CEO, but not chief executive. The three letters instead stand for Cosmic Engagement Officer. Mike is president, and the total difference in their titles loosely reflects the contrast in their personalities. Lisa, the youngest, is consumer, educator, and blogger. Their mother, Trudy Bronner, is chief financial officer. And Lisa's husband, Michael Millam, is chief operating officer. When we met at the Natural Products Expo, David, fresh off a vision quest in Mexico in which he had no food or water for four days, shared that an LSD and ecstasy-fueled trip at a gay trans club in his 20s helped him finally understand his grandfather. It was an awakening of divine love and light that continues to shape how he leads Dr. Bronner's. 
He definitely fell short in some ways, David said a few weeks later during a tour of the company's headquarters and soap factory in Vista. But in other ways, was this mystical tapped-in genius that was doing the best he could to help the world. Born in, 20, in 1908 to a family of Jewish-German soap makers, Emanuel Hel, uh, Hilbronner, he dropped the heel after the rise of Hitler, immigrated to the U.S. when he was 21. His parents stayed in Germany and were killed in Nazi concentration camps during the Holocaust. Emanuel then lived in Chicago, made it his personal mission to heal the fractured world, and began delivering fiery public lectures to anyone who would listen. According to family lore, his sister had, com had him committed to a mental facility in Elgin, Illinois, where he received electric shock treatments that he believed permanently damaged his eyesight. He escaped in 1946 and made his way west to Las Vegas. A lucky spin of the roulette wheel won him enough money to get to Los Angeles. There, Emmanuel took up his soapbox once more before the runaway success of his soap overshadowed his proselytizing. But spreading his ideology remained an all-consuming obsession, making him by all accounts a neglectful father who ultimately placed his three children in foster care. My father kind of thought of the moral ABC was on the, on the label as what took his dad away from being a dad, Mike said. A 2007 Times story described Emmanuel as a bizarre character of epic proportions. In an article two decades earlier, the paper noted that the elder Brunner spends much of his time chanting, speaking, and ranting infinite variations of the moral ABC into a dozen or more tape recorders placed strategically around the house. A human audience, whether it's his son, a secretary, or a reporter, is little more than another tape recorder. Over time, the family has come to terms with its tumultuous history, embracing the inspirational aspects of its complicated patriarch while learning to make peace with the rest. Emmanuel's lasting influence can be found throughout the company's headquarters in Vista, where Dr. Bronner's relocated in 2015 after outgrowing its home in nearby Escondido. In an enormous black-and-white photograph of him in the lobby on corporate pickup trucks custom-wrapped with all one in a swirly electric blue portrait of him, in his ubiquitous thick sunglasses with a bottle of peppermint soap that hangs in David's office, and a giant quote about Spaceship Earth painted on a jewel-toned wall of the All One Cafe. We feel like we're custodians of this amazing legacy, said Mike 48, and we want to make sure that we don't just rest on the shoulders of our grandfather. In practice, that has meant pushing for a lot more than just the moral ABC. Dr. Bronner's, in its modern era, has evolved into a vehicle for outright activism. It pledges that all profits not needed for business are dedicated to progressive causes and charities. Last year, that amounted to $8.7 million given away, more than a third of it bottom line. More than a third of its bottom line. The company donates to more than 300 nonprofits, a vast lineup that includes organizations devoted to environmental conservation, drug policy re reform, income equality, animal welfare, Black Lives Matter, and LGBTQ plus rights. Last year, Dr. Bronner's released a midterm voter guide uh, with a list of 17 state and local ballot initiatives the company felt strongly about, such as decriminalizing psychedelics and increasing taxes on the rich. We're not pushing any agenda, Trudy Bronner said at the Anaheim Expo, 
where she was handing out candy canes affixed with a with $100 bills to employees she hadn't seen in over all the holidays. There is no agenda. I told her that I was surprised by that, pointing out that the company clearly harbors strong opinions on many social and environmental issues. Well, my son does. She doesn't have to specify which son. Over the years, David has gotten himself in trouble with the law on multiple occasions for his protest antics. A longtime advocate of hemp. David was once arrested while planting hemp seeds outside the Drug Enforcement Administration in 2009. He was arrested again three years later after he locked himself in a cage near the White House with a dozen industrial hemp plants. Firefighters had to cut through the steel bars to get him. In 2018, Dr. Bronner celebrated the federal legalization of hemp farming in the U.S. after nearly two decades of campaigning for it. Organic hemp seed oil is an ingredient in its soaps. We take stands that aren't popular with everybody, David said. People say, why don't you just make soap? But then our customers are like, don't you have any idea what these people are? This is what they do. Dr. Brunis has also been uh, vocal about fair wages. The company is the largest it's ever been with more than 300 employees. Full-time permanent employees are paid at least $25.93 an hour. And the salaries of top executives are capped at five times that of its lowest paid fully vested worker, meaning David and Mike make roughly $300,000 a year. Employees receive annual bonuses of up to 10% of their sal salary, $7,500 a year for child care costs, and free vegan lunches every day. The company offers zero deductible health care and in 2022 added ketamine-assisted therapy to its mental health benefits. Some of its stances, particularly those concerning gun control and immigration rights, have angered some consumers. But as far as the brothers can tell, sales haven't taken a hit. Outspoken that other famously outspoken companies, including outdoor clothing retailer Patagonia, have discovered as well. Dr. Bronner's recorded an all-time high of $190 million in annual revenue in 2020, when, uh, when people were panic buying household products early in the COVID-19 pandemic. The company is on track to exceed that figure this year, with first quarter revenue up to up 19.8% over the same period in 2022, David said. Dr. Bronner's continues to add new personal care products and plans to expand its fledgling food division. Besides the chocolate bars, which were launched in 2021, it also sells organic coconut oil. Despite the company's list of 18-in-1 uses for its soaps, it now makes dedicated toothpaste, shaving soap, hair rinse, and biodegradable household cleaner. On Monday, in response to customer requests for an eco-friendly option to reuse the iconic plastic bottles, Dr. Bronner's began selling 32-ounce refill cartons of its liquid soaps. Like many consumer brands, Dr. Bronner's promotes its products on its social media accounts, which feature the usual giveaways and customer testimonials. The accounts have also become bold extensions of the company's activism. A recent post on the company's Instagram grid featured the words End the Racist War on Drugs with a tiny image of a soap bottle at the bottom in the bottom right corner. Another said safer laws, safer gun laws equals fewer deaths. It doesn't matter how spicy the issues we support are, Mike said. Nothing will com compete with my grandfather putting Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, Abraham, 
Elel on his signature soap and being like, this is why I'm making it. Even though it's his son, it's even though his son was saying, just call it Mint Glow. That was Dr. Bonner's Soap for Any Subculture by Andrea Chang from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, July 16, 2023. And this is actually from a column called Created in California. This is the first installment of Created in California, a new series highlighting iconic consumer businesses founded in the Golden State. All right, here's a little something from the sports section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, July 21st, 2023. Snyder finds $60 million while NFL approves sale. From Times Staff and Wire reports. Washington Commanders owner Dan Snyder sexually harassed a team employee who oversaw team executives who deliberately withheld millions of dollars in revenue from other clubs, and he has agreed to pay a $60 million fine the league announced Thursday. The NFL released a 23-page report detailing the findings of an independent investigation into Snyder's conduct just minutes after its owners unanimously, unanimously approved the sale of the commanders to Josh Harris for a record $6.05 billion. The fine represents 1% of the sale price. Snyder brought the t- bought the team, then known as the Redskins, for $800 million. The investigation was led by former Securities and Exchange Commission co-chair Mary Jo White and conducted by her law firm, Debovois De and Plimpton. The league pledged to make the findings of the probe public. Investigators concluded that Washington withheld $11 million in revenue that should have been shared with other teams and announced the report suggests may have been far greater. White's firm was unable to reach a conclusion about tens of millions of additional dollars that may have been withheld in part because Snyder and the team did not fully co- uh, cooperate fully, according to the report. The report concluded that Snyder sexually uh, harassed former team employee Tiffany Johnson, alleged uh, allegations that Johnson first made last year in front of a House committee. And that was Snyder is fined six, $60 million dollars while NFL approved sale from Time Staff and Wire Reports from the sports section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, July 21st, 2023. Here's a little entertainment news from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, July 20th, 2023. Step away from the precipice. Judith Bernstein's paintings should uh, shout warnings about America's Drift by Christopher Knight, art critic. Judith Bernstein's paintings are yelling again. Through a theatrical constellation of bursting color, speeding brushwork, dense composition, and clashing art historical insights, the New York-based artist is producing loud, aggressively playful canvases that grab you by the lapels, determined to advance serious purposes. At the Box Gallery downtown, six large and eight smaller recent paintings selected for the occasion by artist Paul McCarthy extend a series that Bernstein began during the dark days of the Trump administration. Unsurprising for an incisive feminist artist, now 80, working during a cruel period of explosive misogyny. She first gained notice in the early 70s with monumental drawings that fuse a giant phallus with an enormous round head screw, the gestural energy of brilliantly handled Shaggy charcoal exclaiming furious dissent against industrial age patriarchy in no uncertain terms. The blood red hue of a small 1974 silk screen version in Vermilion, Vermilion, installed with four drawings in a side gallery, evokes engorgement and violence.
genitalia are all over the recent paintings, whether flaccid penises dropping over scrotums or volatile vulvae. The latter are expressionist descendants of Gustave Courbet's famous anatomically descriptive The Origin of the World, 1866, a fragment of a larger painting of a reclining female nude that was apparently cut down by the father of French realism or someone else to focus squarely on her spread legs. Bernstein renders them with vigorous brushwork, the male and female forms more familiar from bathroom graffiti than an art museum. The word gaslighting is slathered across several of them. It's misspelling intentional. You wonder for a moment, is that a flub or, it, or is it deliberate and therefore meaningful? And let, the letters are jammed in among gapping eyes and open mouths of sometimes skull-like heads. The other paintings insert the word Trumpenschlong amid the pictorial chaos decorating the invented but pertinent vulgarity with vivid swastikas. <clears throat> Bernstein is not subtle. Others stipulate, we don't owe you a tomorrow, insisting that taking control of the present matters most. Gaslighting is calculated emotional abuse <clears throat> designed to make a person think they are losing their sanity. Bernstein's sample, clever in insertion of linguistic doubt resonates amid the visual noise produced by her fluorescent palette of shrieking red, screaming yellow, and bombastic blue. Snap out of it, the paintings virtually yell like Cher smacking a moonstruck Nicolas Cage. The color is made even more vivid when set against flat fields of inky blackness, crumpled azure grounds suggestive of 1960s protest-era tie-dye or in one room heightened by black light illumination. The term, of course, derives from Gaslight, the 1944 film The War that earned Ingrid Bergman an Oscar for her role as a woman driven mad by her husband, a covert criminal. Gaslit Nation, a sharp political podcast hosted by Sarah Kenzior and Andrea Shalupa, scholars on the functioning of authoritarian states, who assert that Trump represented a criminal syndicate posing as a government, made the personal political. Gaslighting is now part of the conversational lexicon about life today, with women often its immediate receptors. Bernstein's paintings give a feminist twist to French art brote, raw art, the work of the mentally ill, children, convicts, and primitive artists, which kicked uh, modernist conventions to the curb in the aftermath of gruesome World War II. With the specter of fascism all around us again, the bellowing confrontation in Bernstein's work, a combination of wit and outrage, is nothing if not timely. That was Step Away from the Precipice by Christopher Knight, art critic from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, July 20th, 2023. Okay, now we're going to read an article from a site called RAC.org, and that stands for the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism. And this is called This Tisha Be'av, Act as if There is No God, August 2nd, 2022, by Shana Han. Tisha Be'av is a day of mourning commemorating the destruction of the First and Second Temples. In recent years, it's also a day to mourn other tragedies that have darkened Jewish history. The Romans putting down the Bar 
Kokhba revolt, mass murders of Jewish communities during the Crusades, expulsions from England, France, and Spain in the Middle Ages, and the Holocaust. Tisha B'Av makes me uncomfortable. For me, reading the Book of Lamentations is a deeply disturbing experience. My emotions are stretched back and forth between what I would call extreme Han, the Korean word for deep sorrow, resentment, grief, regret, and anger, and God's righteous punishment of the children of Israel for our transgressions. The view that all these tragedies are the punishment of a vengeful moralizing God is unacceptable to me. What kind of God would distant a child to be born with significant health problems, killed in a mass shooting at school, or die in a car accident? What kind of God would intentionally design Auschwitz? What kind of God would preordain what happened to the Rohingya in 2017 and 18? My mom brought about tough questions Jews asked by Rabbi Edward Feinstein from my brother and me one Hanukkah shortly before it became a bat mitzvah. In reconciling the existence of God with heinous tragedies like the Holocaust, the author explained that human agency, even if that agency is to do evil, evil takes precedence. Remember the Talmud's teaching, God doesn't stop nature from following its own rules. Human beings have a nature. The most important part of human nature is our ability to make choices. We can choose to be good or evil, do good or to do good or evil. We can choose to be loving or hateful, to build or destroy. And just as God doesn't interfere with when nature follows its own rules, God doesn't stop human beings from making their own choices, even when they choose the worst of evil. By our nature, human beings tend to take things for granted, especially the things we're given to easily. The state of the world is our responsibility, not God's. Each of us has to make a conscious choice to take care and then to act to, uh, to improve our world. By taking ownership of and responsibility for the world and the state we find it in today, we can truly value it and work to ensure the progress we make lasts. In a world filled with seemingly endless human-driven cruelty, apathy, and suffering, it takes far more emotional energy and resilience to care. It would be easier to detach from the world and modify our expectations to expect very little or nothing to minimize our own pain. But our choices define us. And I know for me, my choice to care about the world defines me as a Jew, as a Korean, as an American, and as a human being. It's why I wanted to be an L.A. at the R.A.C. The more I learned about the terrible and uh, terribly important issues of our day, I'm reminded of Martin Buber's explanation for, uh, for the existence of atheists in Tales of Hasidim, Volume 2. When someone is in need of help, act as if there were, was no God. August 25th marks the anniversary of the Rohingya genocide, when the Burmese military committed heinous acts of murder and violence against the Rohingya people, driving them to Bangladesh. In the face of heinous, unspeakable acts like genocide, and the fact that genocide continues to happen despite global efforts and the rallying cry, never again, no response seems adequate. A hate-filled monster with a gun seems more powerful than an advocate with a pen and paper. But the choice is there. Define within yourself the courage to care and do something even when it may seem pointless to do so. The journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. Most of us in our lifetime will not run into a burning building and rescue ten orphans, but every single one of us has the power to take smaller, incremental actions. 
write a letter to Congress, vote in elections, and get others to vote as well. Learn about an important advocacy issue and educate about and educate others about it. Those actions can add up to significant changes in government, society, and the world. Evil does not blossom overnight, but neither does goodness. Genocide doesn't begin with gas chambers, machetes, or machine guns. It begins with people making a choice to hate others and then acting on their hatred. Tough questions Jews ask is still on the coffee table in our living room. One of my favorite stories is about, advo about ad advocacy is from that book. A man goes up to heaven at the end of his life. He stands before the throne of God. The man looks up at God and says, You know, I'm very angry at you. Can't you see that the world you created is filled with suffering and ugliness and destruction? Why don't you do something to fix the world's mess? God looks down at the man, and a gentle voice says, I did do something. I sent you. That was This Tisha B'Av, Act As If There Is No God, by Shana Han, from RAC.org, August 2, 2022. Shana Han grew up in New York. The intersection of Judaism and social justice is a deep and abiding part of Shana's life and identity. She was involved with NFTY, Urban Mitzvah Corps, Crane Lake Camp, Hillel, Birthright, Massa Israel Teaching Fellows, and the RAC's very own Latekin and Mahon Kaplan programs. Shana graduated summa cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa from Union College. She earned the Minerva Prize her senior year for her history thesis on watershed literary heroine Nancy Drew and her work to establish the Committee for Consent Education, a group dedicated to combating sexual assault. After graduation, Shanna interned for U.S. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand in New York City and earned a teaching, uh, a teaching English speakers of others' language certification. From 2016 to 2021, she lived in Spain, Israel, and South Korea, teaching English to elementary school students. Her experiences abroad enriched her cultural knowledge by allowing her to learn different languages, meet new people, and experience different foods, holidays, <clears throat> and beliefs. Shana's portfolio includes gun violence prevention, environment and climate change, Israel, foreign policy, anti-Semitism, the Holocaust, international religious freedom, and Native American rights. She is proud to be the first cohort of the Jews of Color Initiative partnership with the RACLA program. All right, let's move on to JewishJournal.com and going into the uh, commentary section, we start with this one. In Israel, the buck stops with Bibi. How bad must things get before Bibi says enough and brings his country back from the brink? He knows that the buck stops with him, and the burden of preventing a disaster is squarely on his shoulders. By David Suiza, July 16, 2023. In his farewell address in January 1953, President Harry Truman referred to his famous The Buck Stops Here motto, motto when he said, The President, whoever he is, has to decide. He can't pass the buck to anybody. No one else can do the deciding for him. That's his job. That was homespun, a homespun way of saying that the leader of a country is ultimately responsible for what happens under his leadership. The buck stops at the top. When President Joe Biden decided to make a rushed withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan, he had only himself to blame for the violent breakdown that followed. The flip side to power is the burden of responsibility. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is feeling that burden right now. 
To regain the power he craved, he had to make deals with extremist partners. Then by allowing a radical and divisive judicial overhaul to move forward, he triggered an unpre unprecedented civil turmoil. No matter how much he tried to deflect blame, the hard truth is that he's the only man in Israel who can prevent a looming disaster. There comes a point when preventing a disaster must take precedence over other priorities. Israel has reached that point. It doesn't matter if you are for or against the judicial reform, nothing can justify watching Israeli society tear itself apart. It's like parents watching their kids in a horrible fight. Regardless of right or, wrong, right or wrong, one wants to scream, STOP! Bibi is watching his nation in a horrible crisis and allowing it to continue. He hears President Eisen Herzog calling the situation a shocking and dangerous reality and the blunder of historic proportions where families and friends are being torn apart. He sees hundreds of thousands of his fellow Israelis protesting for 28 straight weeks with fire in their veins and anguish in their hearts. He knows if the divisive overhaul proceeds, the turmoil will only get worse. And perhaps most disappointing of all, he knows that the protesters have a point. Before getting embroiled in a criminal trial and partnering with extremists, Bibi understood the value of an independent court system, which his current overhaul is trying to undermine. I believe that a strong, independent court allows for the existence of all other institutions in a democracy, he said in a 2012 interview. In places with no strong and independent court system, rights cannot be protected. Bibi is hoping we will overlook his past statements and talk about anything but his overhaul. To avoid being held accountable for the civic meltdown happening under his watch, he'd much rather we talk about the excesses of the protesters. He's hoping we'll get distracted by the argument that the protests are not about the reforms. Well, for me and many others, the protests are about the reforms. They are about his coalition's blatant attempt to neuter the court oversight. No wonder his coalition is proceeding with such cold-blooded efficiency they're salivating at the prospect of being free to impose their will, annex territories, inject even more money into Haredi communities that refuse to work or defend the country, name political cronies and criminals to positions of power. The extremists know that with a neutered Supreme Court, virtually nothing can stop them. Instead of forging reasonable reforms with a broad consensus, Bibi's 64C coalition is going for maximum power. Even the architect of the reforms himself, Justice Minister Yariv Levin, recognized the overreach. As Times of Israel reported in April, Levin conceded that a key piece of his legislation would enable his coalition to exercise control over all three branches of government, which he admitted is unacceptable in a democratic country. But none of this will stop them. Going for a more piecemeal approach, the coalition is now set to ram through a highly contentious bill that would scrap the use of the reasonableness tested by the judiciary to review dubious decisions made by elected officials. If the bill goes through, Bibi will see his country nearing the breaking point. It doesn't really matter that President Herzog is calling for negotiations with the opposition to resume and that he believes compromise is within reach. What matters most to Bibi is that he can't afford to upset his extremist partners if he wants to stay in power. This, this power, however, comes with a high price. The price of being held responsible. The turmoil that has forever tainted Israel's 75th year as well as Bibi's own legacy belongs to him and to no one else.
How bad must things get before Bibby says enough and brings his country back from the brink? He knows that the buck stops with him, and the burden of preventing a disaster is squarely on his shoulders. That was in Israel, The Buck Stops with Bibby by David Suisa, July 16, 2023. All right, now we move on to this one. And uh, this is called Eight Smart AI Devices That Promise to Help You Spend More Time at Work and Less Time with Loved Ones. This summer, I am particularly excited to share with readers several new smart devices, some powered by AI, that will make our lives invaluably efficient. By Tabby, Tabby Raphael, July 19, 2023. The following is a work of satire. For our soon-to-be AI overlords, satire is defined as the exaggeration or ridicule of various topics, mostly in fiction writing. Humans respond to satire with laughter and the occasional nose-snort. Technology powered by artificial intelligence can only do good, as we have witnessed with driverless cars, chat GPT conversations that ask where you have been all day and why you've been so neglectful lately, and one day soon, robot soldiers that will be programmed by merciful tyrants. This summer, I am particularly excited to share with readers several new smart devices, some powered by AI, that will make our lives invaluably efficient leaving us with more time to ignore our loved ones, general health, and loyal pets. Cyrano de Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley startup What's My Line has teamed with French AI trailblazer uh, Tajour Sewell to create a pair of reading glasses with speech recognition technology that allows people to do better connect on first or second dates or after 15 years of marriage. Named iCyrano, the device listens to what the person across the table, couch, or gondola is saying, then generates a response via a written message that the user reads on the glasses. We still need more testing to assess whether humans, especially women, would be open to going on a first date with someone whose glasses or monocle tells them what to say, Tojour Sol told the journal. Users take note that given today's delicate environment, iCyrano is not able to generate responses to topics related to politics, race, religion, class, gender, books, films, TV, music, art, world history, geography, law enforcement, gardeners, tailors, acupuncturists, horticulturists, stamp collectors, or international cheeses. Prices start at $7,800. A hand that helps. Smaller than a pack of matches, a device called Helping Hand and its companion Thumbbot can be placed next to any item whether a garage door or jar of food, and do one's bidding with a simple voice command. Though most often used to open or close items, users have also tested Helping Hand to aid with pulling up stubborn zippers on jeans and shorts, closing that pesky screen curtain that always blows open, and removing those mattingly sticky price tags on picture frames that leave a perpetual trace of goo. Truly, they are the worst. When asked if they have received any customer complaints or negative reviews, representatives at Helping Hand informed the journal that the only recorded complaint as of press time uh, was sent from Brooklyn, New York. According to the company, an 89-year-old woman complained that she had programmed Helping Hand to open a jar of pungent cavelta fish with extra jelly inside, but the device repeatedly refused to do so. When the woman continued her voice commands to open the jar of cavelta fish, Helping Hand spontaneously combusted. The company believes the device may have self-destructed. 
prices start at $299. The mirror has two faces and warranties. Fab Everyone Housewares has launched a first-of-its-kind smart mirror, which helps users plan outfits that are more complementary to individual body shapes, <clears throat> and also monitors weight and body mass index. However, the most commonly used function of the mirror offers users a sneak peek into what they will look like in 10 to 15 years. According to a statement, Fab Everyone Housewares is recalling 2 million smart mirrors and making updates to this futuristic function. In a statement, the company said, For some reason, after seeing what their hair, face, and bodies will look like in a decade and a, and a half, many customers are returning broken mirrors in mass quantities and demanding full refunds. The recall will, will result in the removal of the function and the addition of a new feature that will assess users' overall physical health to inform them of when they will most likely die. Prices start at $3,100. Out with the Hanes and Stains. Another device that claims to aid the fashionably clueless is a unique smart closet, which can be programmed by any member of the household. The smart closet's most popular feature is one that denies fathers and husbands access to t-shirts purchased before 1999, or the option to wear socks with any form of sandals. Impressively, the smart closet also has a cleaning function. With its door shut tightly, the smart closet steams and sanitizes clothing, including delicates, and may also be programmed to irreparably shrink and damage any men's underwear that it identifies as being over 10 years old. Prices start at $2,600. Station Identification Tired of informing your devoted social media followers about the names of various friends and loved ones in your incessant selfies and photos? Kroger Gamble Bloomberg, a new AI software startup, has created a cutting-edge camera that uses AI facial recognition to not only identify the names and faces of those pictured, but their political affiliations as well. When asked if it shares this information with third parties, KGB responded that photo objects' political leanings, especially if identified as conservative, are only shared with Instagram, the FBI, and the IRS. Prices start at $179. Save the Cottage Cheese Integrated Modular Matrix Algorithms has introduced the first smart trash can that calculates how much food waste a household accrues weekly, automatically separates waste materials that are compostable, and offers reassuring words to those who walk past an overflowing trash can and seethe with resentment toward their partner or children again. In a test, the journal was impressed with the trash can's composting efficiency. But alarmed by the device's repeated guilt-inducing verbal feedback, including asking the user, you're really going to throw away all that meat? There are starving children abroad. And you could have planted 10 new trees with all those lemon seeds you just threw out. Inevitably, this user could not withstand the IMMA trash can's consistent criticism and maladaptive feedback and returned it for a partial refund. The Icy Throne Tired of exposing your posterior to ice-cold toilet seats during winter months? An Alabama company named Warm Cans enables users to set the temperature for other toilet seats from the comfort of their beds via an app on their phones. Online user reviews range from it's the best to I feel like I was sitting on a toasty cinnamon bun. However, one user has filed a lawsuit against Warm Cans claiming that he suffered second-degree burns after turning up the warm, set, the warm setting to L.A. in October. 
Conversely, the company is also facing legal repercussions after a user abroad set the cooling setting to San Francisco in June and experienced severe frostbite on its rear end. Wormcans did not respond to a request for comment. Blessed news. Warm toilet seats are luxurious, but a new smart toilet by Intelligent Release Incorporated promises to detect traces of infection, imbalance, or even cancer in users' bodies throughout through state-of-the-art urine assessment. However, one Idaho man was incensed when, after an assessment, the smart toilet informed his wife that she was pregnant with their first child. In a nod to the sign of the times, the man told the journal, my mother told my father she was pregnant by putting a teddy bear and a loving note in his uh, arms as he slept. But me? The toilet found out where we were going uh, We were going to have a, have a baby before I did. May you always use your new devices in health, efficiency, and warm posteriors. And that was 8 Smart AI Devices that Promise to Help You Spend More Time at Work and Less Time with Loved Ones by Tebby Raphael, July 19, 2023. And Tebby Raphael is an award-winning writer, speaker, and weekly columnist for the Jewish Journal of Greater Los Angeles. Follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Tebby Raphael. And this other one is called Israel and Evangelicals. Jewish pro-Israel activism among Jews has an important impact in American politics, of course, but evangelical influence has also become extremely critical, especially among Republican officeholders, by Dan Schnur, July 19, 2023. Maybe you've heard the story about the two Jews arguing about evangelical support for Israel. The first one praises the great value of religious conservatives making the pro-Zionist case and their importance as political allies. The second warns that many Christians only stand with Israel because of their belief that Jesus will not return to earth until the Holy Land belongs to the Jews and therefore they must be regarded with suspicion. How about this, says the first Jew. Let's work with them until Jesus comes back and then we'll figure out what to do after that. Jewish pro-Israel activism among Jews has an important impact on American politics, of course. But evangelical influence has also become extremely critical, especially among Republican officeholders. Most of us appreciate that support, but we don't talk about it in public all that much. We love Israel for different reasons, and we're willing to stand with improbable allies if that's what's required to get U.S. presidents and Congress to do the right thing. So it's tempting for many Jewish Zionists to look past the uncomfortable reality that support among Christian conservatives for Israel now often has even greater influence than the advocacy of this country's Jewish community. But now that President Biden has begun talking about supporting Ukraine with what he calls the Israel model, the role played by evangelical Christians on behalf of the Jewish state requires a closer look. American special relationship with Israel is based on the deeply held beliefs of Jews, friends of democracy, and human rights, geopolitical realists, evangelicals, and other religious conservative voters. But as resistance to military aid for Ukraine deepens among congressional Republicans, we're reminded of the critically important role that religious conservatives play in the pro-Israel coalition. Biden consistently argues that admitting Ukraine as a member of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization alliance is desirable but premature. The president has worked very hard to help Ukraine defend itself against Russia, but he worries that bringing the country into NATO could end up prolonging the war if Vladimir Putin were to see the decision as a provocation. 
We don't want World War III has been a frequent Biden warning since hostilities first broke out last spring. This balancing act has forced the president to identify other ways to publicly stand with Ukraine, most notably by providing the country with the type of sophisticated military weaponry they need for their current counteroffensive to succeed. So now, so Biden now points to the extremely generous support that the U.S. has provided Israel over the years and suggests that Ukraine could be the beneficiary of similar largesse even without the NATO designation. If Israel receives such favorable treatment without the formal designation of an alliance member, then maybe Ukraine can be satisfied with the same arrangement. But just last week, roughly one-third of House Republicans voted against continuing aid to Ukraine. Most of those same members who are isolationists on most foreign policy matters but are fervent social conservatives count themselves among Israel's strongest supporters. Why do they oppose helping Ukraine but stand so strongly with Israel? It's not because of their relationship with the American Jewish community or because of their respect for traditional Republican internationalist hawks. It's because of the deep relationships they have formed with their evangelical and fundamentalist constituents who want Israel to be safe and secure for very different reasons than we do. The American Jewish community has developed an extremely powerful and influential advocacy apparatus with which we advocate for Israel and its people. But we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that we are doing this on our own. If we would like to see how the U.S. role in the Middle East might be different if it were not for the committed pro-Zionist efforts of Christian conservative voters, the growing ambivalence of Repu among Republicans regarding Ukraine gives us a vivid clue. Most Americans support democracy and human rights in both Israel and Ukraine. But this is a much easier argument to win when believers in Moses and Jesus are on the same side. And that was Israel and Evangelicals by Dan Schnur, July 19, 2023. Dan Schnur is the U.S. politics editor for the Jewish Journal. He teaches courses in politics, communications, and leadership at UC Berkeley, USC, and Pepperdine. He hosted the monthly webinar, the Dan Schnur Political Report from the, for the Los Angeles World Affairs Council and Town Hall. Follow Dan's work at www.danschnurpolitics.com. That's www.danschnurpolitics, D-A-N-S-C-H-N-U-R-P-O-L-I-T-I-C-S.com. All right, so let's uh, fill the remainder with uh, some ads from jewishjournal.com. And this is something from the support section, actually. Support the Jewish Journal today. Your contribution will enable the Jewish Journal to continue bringing thoughtful commentary, powerful storytelling, and Jewish inspiration to our community week after week. Online donations by credit card or ACH can be made using the form below. Donations by check can be made out and mailed to Tribe Media Corp, 1880 Century Park East, Suite 200 in Los Angeles, 90067. Donor advised funds, please search Media Tribe Tribe Media Corp, that is, with tax ID number 95-4019743. And on to the marketplace section. And as always, to reserve your marketplace ad space, call 213-368-1661. And space reservation and ad material deadlines are 12 p.m. on Thursday. And so let's go to this one. Hillside Mortuary, provide, providing compassionate and professional mortuary services to families of all faiths. Hillside is built upon a foundation of relationships, enabling us to assist in coordinating and expediting arrangements. 
www.hillsidememorial.org slash advanced-planning. For more information about our online floral service, please visit www.hillsidememorial.org slash floral-service. Uh, Los Angeles FD number 1357. 1358, that is. And folks, that'll do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So for everything happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world, find it all right here. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.